The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at the science behind some of our favorite adult beverages. We'll talk about the questionable reliability of wine rankings and look back at an interview on the technical challenges of making and drinking beer. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell. I'm here with Robert Hodgson, retired professor of oceanography and statistics, founder of Fieldbrook Winery, and an analyst at the State Fair. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you. Now, I want to start out with something a bit unusual. I'd like to hear a bit about your background, because it's very, very relevant to the research that we'll be talking about. I started uh, being interested in wine at an early age, but uh, as a graduate student, I started making wine. You know, at that point, I was interested in tasting different people's wines, and I was, more than anything else, I was especially interested in whether, whether uh, French wines that cost a lot of money were any better than ordinary wines. And so, as a graduate student, I organized the wine course. We were buying the best wines in the world. We were buying uh, Romani Conti and Chateau Margaux and you name it. And we set up the classes so that we split the bottle into 18 glasses and everybody got a taste. And we started to evaluate to see if there's any correlation between quality and price. So that's probably my first interest in being a skeptic about pricing and wine quality. Uh, after I finished uh, graduate school, I started uh, teaching at Humboldt State University here in Arcata, California. And it just turns out that uh, our family physician uh, had a small winery and we, got, we became friends and I helped him out for a few years. Then in 1976, I decided I could start off on my own and so we founded our own winery here in uh, Northern California. After a few years, we started entering wines and competitions. And then we noticed that sometimes we would send a wine to one competition and get a gold medal, and we'd send it to another competition, and it would run in the pooper. At one point, I decided I would become a wine judge. So the University of California has a test you take, and if you pass the test, you can become a certified judge at the California State Fair Commercial Wine Competition. And I started uh, tasting wines and I, entered, I was uh, a, uh, a judge for several years. Then, uh, you know, one day I thought, looking at all my, uh, my fellow judges who were writing all these uh, scrupulous notes about the wines, I thought, I don't know what they're seeing in this wine, but I don't have that ability. So I talked to the chief judge and told him that I did not think I was a very good wine judge. But he said, with your academic background, your background in statistics, and also because you were from a small winery, we could probably use your voice on the advisory board to the state fair wine competition. And uh, I've been a member of that board for almost 20 years now. After I started working for the chief judge, whose name is uh, Pooch, Poochalowski. I said, Pooch, let's set up a little test. We'll just start off with a couple of panels. Let's serve the judges the same wine, but we won't tell them about it. 
the, the way the state fair used to operate is all the judges would very quickly and the first day go through all the wines that were entered. And they would make a very quick decision about pass or fail. If two judges said the wine passed, the wine would come back the following day for final evaluation. On the other hand, if let's say three judges said the wine did not pass, the wine would be excused from further competition. And uh, the first day, the pass-fail day, uh, we had three different samples of my Zinfandel that the judges were tasting. And in two of those samples, they rejected the wine. That is, three judges said it was not uh, good enough for the final day. But one of the times, these are the same judges, by the way, on one occasion, the judges gave it two passes, which meant it came back the following day. Well, lo and behold, the following day, the judge got a gold medal by every judge on the panel. It was a phenomenal success story for a wine that could easily have been rejected. So I told Pooch, I said, you know what, maybe it's not a good idea that we have uh, the judges being so hasty the first day. Maybe we should just slow it down and uh, evaluate the wines over two days and uh, just take our time about it. So he did. Uh, but we also continued the idea of testing the judges. So the following year, for three of the panels, we started giving the judges multiple samples of the same wine. A judge in a certain flight of wines, uh, typically between 10 and 30, depending on circumstances, the judge would have these wines, uh, glasses of wines lined up in front of them. Uh, the wines were differentiated by each had its own number. Uh, and in that group of numbered wines, three of those numbers really referred to the same wine. And those samples that were poured, the wine was poured from the same bottle and the samples were all poured and served on the same flight. And this same procedure uh, occurred for all four judges sitting at the panel. Now, what we would hope is that a judge would give all three samples uh, a similar score. What we found, surprisingly, was that some judges were scoring the same samples, no award, to a range of a gold medal. We did this for about five years. Uh, every year I wrote up the results, uh, presented them to the advisory board, and they liked the work I was doing. Uh, and after a few years, I said, you know, we should publish this. And they said, no, we shouldn't. I said, well, it should be public information. That's pretty interesting. I said, I think we should publish it. And they said, no, we think, well, do it another year. Well, after about five years, I, I was put in touch with the managing editor of the Journal of Wine Economics, and I sent him off a copy of uh, this research paper. And he was astounded. He sent that copy to the editors, uh, there are about five editors of this journal all over the world. All of them uh, were in favor of getting this article published as soon as possible. So uh, I went back to the board and explained to them what had happened. I said, uh, let's see, I'll hide the name of the California State Fair as the source of this information. 
and will publish the article as simply referring to a major competition. Uh, on the advisory board, there's also a journalist that wrote for the Sacramento Bee, and he said if we submitted that article to the world and one of his reporters could not find out the source of the information within 15 minutes, he would fire him. So the board agreed to have the article published and, and to announce that the source of the data was the California State Fair. The, the results of that study show that about 10% of the judges were coherent in assigning the, the replicate samples the same score. About 10% were in the category of scoring the wines in a range from bronze or no award to gold, and the rest of the judges were somewhat in between. We had hope in the initial days because we thought, well, we have 10% of the judges are good. Let's use them as uh, mentors and they'll train the other judges. So we identified who those judges were and uh, we looked at how they did in subsequent years. And it was kind of appalling that, no, it's just disappointing that the judges that were the best judges one year were in the middle of the pack the following year. So there was no consistency between the judges at all then? No. I mean, there were some judges who were very consistent one year, but they were not the same judges that were very consistent the following year. Okay. So what does this mean? Does this mean that being a wine expert means nothing or or that there's there's actually not a substantial difference between wines? Or what's your interpretation of this? Uh, you have to be very careful about interpreting these results. Um, uh, at this point, I'm not saying anything about wine experts. Right. And I do believe there are wine experts, but all my results refer to a scenario in which a judge uh, is evaluating upwards of 100 wines a day. And I feel it's impossible that the, hum the ability of humans to discriminate flavor and quality is just beyond their ability. My conclusion is that the results of wine competitions are simply unreliable as a measure of quality. Just disregard it. Okay, well, how about the wine awards? When I buy a bottle of wine that has a gold star on it, does that mean anything? Yeah, it means they were lucky. <laughs> uh, the second study I did, uh, which was in the following issue of the Journal of Wine Economics, uh, these articles are available for free. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website and you can download them. In this case, uh, I did not have the privilege of having replicate samples, but I did look at a series of wines that were entered in 13 uh, U.S. wine competitions, and there was a database in which the awards are tabulated for each wine. So there were some wines that were entered in five competitions, there were some wines that were entered in eight competitions, etc. And the interesting thing about this database, which I don't think exists anymore, is that the results indicate whether or not the wine got what award, and if it got no award, it indicated that too. Looking at that data, I was able to show that the likelihood of it getting a gold medal is, uh, is just dictated by what's called a binomial probability distribution. So it's just luck. So how angry are people in the industry at you at this point? Oh, I think some of them are, but some of them aren't. Some of them think I'm doing a great job, and other people... I mean, people in the wine industry know 
this thing about getting awards that if you want to get an award, you just keep entering competitions. Sooner or later, you'll get one. And that's kind of common knowledge in within the industry. But I think the consumer doesn't know that. But I really do think, I mean, right now, do we enter competition? You bet. Uh, when we win, we're lucky. And we put gold medals on those bottles. So are, is there any substantial disagreement with your work uh, from a scientific standpoint rather than an industry standpoint? Well, I'll tell you this, nobody, the kind of data that I was able to get is unique. To my knowledge, there is not another data set in the world that uh, where replicant samples uh, are provided uh, to wine judges. Actually, I have not seen any scholarly criticism of this work at all. The criticism comes from wine critics. They're entitled to their opinion. I am very much looking forward to keeping an eye on this story. <laughs> Robert, lovely to have you here. Well, thanks. And we've linked to Robert Hodgson and his research on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Stay tuned for a rebroadcast of Rochelle Saunders' interview with Charlie Bamforth about the science of beer here on Science for the People after this. <laughs> Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Today, I'm very excited to be talking about something that's close to many people's hearts, and that, of course, is beer. And I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Charlie Bamforth, Professor of Malting and Brewing Sciences at UC Davis in California. In addition to having been involved in the brewing industry for over 34 years, Charlie is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Society of Brewing Chemists and has himself published innumerable papers, articles, and books on beer and brewing, including Beer is Proof God Loves Us, Reaching for the Soul of Beer and Brewing, and Beer, Tap into the Art and Science of Brewing. So pour yourself a pint, unless you're driving, and get comfortable. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you for inviting me. It's nice to be here. So what sort of a science background is handy to have if one wants to get into professional beer brewing? I mean, where did you start? Well, I started uh, as a biochemist, so I studied biochemistry um, at the University of Hull in England. And uh, really, my PhD was on enzymology. And, uh, you know, the enzymology of what I was working on, which is bacteria and the enzymology of barley and yeast of course is very similar so when they were looking for a person to work on the enzymes of uh, brewing materials uh, at the brewing research foundation way back when I thought well give me a job I could do that uh, and it would be something that would combine my social uh, interests and my professional interests so uh, that's how it all started so how long have humans actually been brewing beer for about 8,000 years, um, variously described as six to 8,000 years, but uh, we can link it back to what we refer to as the Fertile Crescent, which is the, uh, the region in, uh, around Iraq, as we call it nowadays. And in those days, people had a nomadic lifestyle. Um, they would uh, drive goats in search of grass, 
And what they ate, what the people ate, was uh, barley, barley grain, uh, because they had barley uh, that was growing wild in that region, and they would eat the grain. And uh, they found it hard and tough and wasn't very pleasant to eat, and it wasn't desperately nutritious. Uh, but purely by happenstance, they found that when it got wet, it started to sprout and got softer and tasted like bean sprouts, so it was tastier and actually easier to digest and was better for them. And then they started, for some reason, started making it into a bread, and that tasted real good. And when they stored that bread in, in large jars and, and accidentally got it wet, uh, interesting things happened. And when they drank the liquid, they sort of got a warm and happy feeling all fell over. And they realized that something wonderful had happened, so that they stopped the nomadic existence and, and had a static lifestyle while they grew the grain and sprouted it and made this bread and did the jar thing. And uh, those tents uh, became uh, cities and, and uh, towns and cities. So I always say that, you know, we, we can thank civilization, or the fact that we've got civilization is thanks to beer. We actually had a question from a listener. Malcolm asks, I've heard the oldest written recipe in the world is reputed to be for beer. Would it still produce a good beer? Well, I think he's referring to the hymn to Ninkasi, which um, is something that stems back to the, the days of Sumeria. And that was uh, clearly a recipe for the brewing of beer. And all I can say is that uh, it was taken on board by a very legendary uh, brewer in uh, the United States called Fritz Maytag a good friend of mine who was brewing in uh, the Anchor Brewing Company in San Francisco. And he decided he was going to brew a beer according to that uh, ancient recipe. And he consulted with uh, archaeologists and uh, people who could read Sumerian script. And they made it as authentic as they possibly could be. And they had a, a big uh, drinking ritual when it was done, uh, where they drank it in the old-fashioned way, and they had uh, the beer in these pitchers, and then everybody drank it through a straw, because that's how it used to be done back in the day. And I said to Fritz, I said, how did it taste? He said, you know, Charlie, it wasn't desperately good, but we had a tremendous amount of fun doing it. Uh, so I probably the beer back in those days uh, would be very dissimilar to what we have now, and probably not quite so uh, pleasant, but nonetheless... Um, I guess the uh, the alcohol would have made people quite happy even in those days. So the beer would have gotten the job done in the end. Absolutely, you know, always does. So how much has the recipe and the process for making beer actually changed over the last few thousand years? Well, considerably. But nonetheless, if you go back, say, 400, 500 years, and you turned up in uh, what then was a brewery, you'd recognize it. You'd know uh, that it was a brewery because the basic shape of the process hasn't changed. Uh, so, I mean, for the longest time, people have been making beer, particularly out of malted barley, but other things as well. Um, perhaps uh, in uh, in the timescale of things, of all the raw materials, the most recent, of course, is the hops. Uh, and although hops were known uh, back in the, you know, the 1000s, 1100s, and indeed St. Hildegard was... Uh, credited with uh, stating that beers uh, were wonderful as preservatives for, for beer. Back in my home uh, country of uh, England, uh, hops were not used until relatively late, you know, the time of uh, Henry VIII and beyond. In those days, they, they used to call hops a wicked and pernicious weed. So um, hops is relatively late in the scene, but still several hundred years. So for the longest time, uh, beer has been brewed uh, in a a very similar way. What's happened is through uh, science and the advances in science, 
we got much better at it. We got much more control over it, much more consistency. And therefore, uh, quite frankly, the beer has never been better than it is uh, now. I would imagine that there's a lot more variety in beer nowadays than there might have been, you know, 8,000 years ago. Oh, yes. Uh, certainly from 8,000 years ago. And, uh, and there's varieties uh, you know, and the, the range of beers available is expanding all the time, you know. And, and here in North America, there's a tremendous uh, interest in developing newer and newer styles, beers that uh, are, are developments on, on what has gone before, but uh, uh, brand new beer styles. You know, I, I'm thinking at the moment, for example, of, of, of things called black IPAs. Back uh, in uh, the UK, where the IPAs originated, there was no such thing as a black IPA. They were IPAs. But now the, they've combined the sort of the almost the stout uh, type of beer and the IPA type of very hoppy beer and combine them together. So uh, newer and, uh, and interesting beer styles are being developed all the time. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, the ingredients of beer and sort of what's going on under the surface during the malting process. Now, we already talked a little bit about barley, and I believe most beer is actually made with barley. So why barley? Is there a reason? Uh, there is, uh, and, and the main reason is that barley uh, has a husk around the outside. When you harvest the barley, you retain a husk or a hull. And uh, in traditional brewing systems, that husk forms a filter medium um, in, the, in the brew house. And basically, the, the liquid, the fermentable uh, sugars uh, in a, a liquid form called wort that is produced during the extraction of the malt, they are filtered through the spent grains uh, and uh, then you clarify and you, you, the, you run this wort then into the kettle for boiling with hops. So the, the real reason for barley uh, is historically is because it's very convenient to use it in that way. Even uh, beers like Hefeweizens, which uh, are made with significant proportions of wheat, uh, they usually contain a proportion of malted barley in there uh, simply to provide the, uh, the husk. So are there any beer that isn't made with any barley at all? Yes, there is, and, uh, and there's a lot of interest in it at the moment, particularly because uh, some people are uh, sensitive to uh, the proteins from uh, barley and wheat, and these, of course, are people with celiac disease. Uh, so the, the proteins, the gluten from the wheat, the hordain from the barley, uh, people with celiac disease can't tolerate them. And therefore, there's a lot of interest in uh, making beers from things that don't contain those uh, proteins. And now for many, many years in Africa, they have made beer from sorghum. And now in, the, in North America, there are several beers that are made from sorghum um, that are uh, designed for people with celiac disease. Uh, other things as well, people are interested in uh, cereals like, uh, or pseudo cereals like buckwheat and, uh, and these sorts of things to make beers that are absolutely free from these sensitive proteins. Having said which, uh, you know, in many of the regular beers, um, because there's so much protein lost during the malting process and during brewing, uh, there are many beers, mainstream beers, that contain very low levels of the problematic protein in the finished beer. But even then, uh, the recommendation to, uh, to people with CI disease is to, is to avoid beer. There are, there are some interesting developments in this area, and there is a an enzyme which is now commercially available, which will uh, absolutely get rid of the last traces of these problematic proteins. So it may well be, uh, and certainly is starting to happen, that there will be beers made from traditional raw materials that are uh, categorically suitable 
for, uh, for people with celiac disease. But uh, we'll have to see how the legislation unfolds on that. And do we have a verdict on taste for these alternate beers? <laughs> well, um, all beer is good beer. And uh, all I would say is, you know, these beers made from sorghum and made from other materials are different. Uh, they're perfectly uh, acceptable. They're, they've got very interesting flavors, um, but they're different. So if you're looking to have a beer which is entirely made out of sorghum or millet or something like that, then it's not going to taste uh, like uh, uh, you know, a classic Pilsner or a classic Pale Ale or something like that. Uh, and that, I think, is why there is such interest in finding ways of producing beer from traditional materials like malted barley that uh, is uh, definitely uh, denuded of these problematic materials. And there is real hope of that happening. So now, malting the barley is, I think, the first step in brewing beer. What's going on at a chemical level there? Well, barley is very hard. And, and the reason barley is hard is that it, it's got all these cells in the, in the endosperm, the storage uh, tissue. And these cells, are, are, they've got little walls around them, or significant walls around them, and they're packed solid with protein and starch. So it's very, very hard. And there's not much uh, in the way of enzymes that are, is present in the barley. So when you sprout the barley, you, you get it wet, you steep it, and then uh, the uh, embryo starts to make hormones, and these uh, follow the water and go into a, a tissue surrounding the endosperm called the alurone and switch it on, and it starts to make enzymes. And these go into the uh, endosperm and break down the walls and break down the protein and expose the starch. So there's a, a softening process going on, a, an increase in the friability, the millability of the, uh, of the grain. So that by the time you've finished germinating, the, you've lost those cell walls, which contain problematic uh, molecules, uh, polysaccharides, uh, primarily beta-glucans, and you've also uh, broken down or solubilized about half of the protein but you've left most of the starch behind, which is a good thing because we need to, to break that starch down in the brew house to form fermentable sugars. So after a period of about four or five days of, of germination, then you dry the uh, malt gently to, to stop the uh, changes taking place. And when you dry it, you, you uh, ideally, uh, hopefully, and usually do, preserve most of the enzymes because you do it very gently. But uh, the sugars and the amino acids that are produced uh, during the germination phase, they start to react together with the heat uh, through a, a reaction called a Maillard reaction, and they give you the nice malty flavors and uh, also the color. And the more intensely you heat, uh, the more color you develop and the more flavor you develop. Uh, and if you heat very intensely, okay, you lose the enzymes, but you produce those very strong um, roasted characters uh, of an uh, intense color that you get in beers like porters and stouts. So a, a beer like a porter or a stout is made uh, with uh, primarily a pale malt to uh, extract uh, or make the extract and the fermentable material, but uh, quite a, a significant percentage of these roasted uh, uh, grains uh, to provide that dark color and that dark flavor. So how do you know when the malt is ready? Are there actually different kinds of malts? Well, yeah, many different kinds of malts. And I, I just mentioned one of them, which is these intensely dried ones. So the, the main malts are, are the fairly pale malts. The, you know, for lagers, the classic Pilsner malt, which is very pale, very lightly dried. The pale ale malt is going to be dried slightly more intensely. Uh, so it's got more flavor and more color, but still has enzymes. 
So in any, for any beer, the main malt that is used uh, is there as a source of enzymes and starch. And then uh, to get progressively uh, more intensely flavored and more colored beers, then you add proportions of these specialty malts. So um, if you take a, 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 a malt and you, you stew it and then heat it reasonably intensely, you'll produce things like crystal malt and caramel malt. And these have got nice toffee caramel-like flavors. And a proportion of those in the brewing grist will give you these nice mellow, uh, full flavors, sweeter types of flavors, right the way through to these chocolate and black malts that are going to give you more coffee uh, astringent, dry, mocha, burnt characteristics. The ultimate, of course, and that is what is used in a very famous Irish stout, is, is roasted barley. Uh, they don't even malt the grain, they, they, they simply roast the barley, and that gives a, an intense color, an intense uh, harshness, which, you know, when you taste it itself, doesn't taste terribly appealing, but when it's uh, part of the, the stout, deliciously poured, with that beautiful white creamy head in, in Dublin, it's absolutely divine. So after the malt is ready, what's the next step? Well, the next step after you've got the malt is, is you have to store it for a month or so because if you take the malt straight off the kiln, it doesn't uh, perform well in the brewery, which means the, the solid and the liquid, when you've extracted them, do not separate very easily. Uh, having stored it, then you grind it up in a mill and it's mixed with hot water. Uh, the classic temperature is 65 degrees Celsius centigrade. And at that temperature, the, the starch in the malt uh, melts, it gelatinizes. And the enzymes, the amylase enzymes from the malt, are then able to break that starch down to produce fermentable sugars. So this is a process that is called uh, mashing. And uh, the liquid that is produced is called wort. And after about an hour or so, uh, the liquid wort is separated from the residual material, as I said earlier, through, uh, the, by filtration through the spent grains. And the wort is, is run off to a, uh, a kettle, and that is where it is boiled uh, with hops, uh, traditionally, uh, to extract the bitterness and the aroma from the hops. This is Science for the People, and I'm Rochelle Saunders. And we'll be right back to continue our conversation with Charlie Danforth about the art and science of beer. On the next episode of Science for the People, we're learning about the past and the future of the human race on the planet we've come to dominate. Desiree Shell talks to Chip Walter, founder of AllThingsHuman.net, about his book Last Ape Standing, the seven-million-year story of how and why we survived. And Rochelle Saunders speaks to University of Cincinnati paleoecologist Brooke Crowley about the evidence that human activity is the primary driver of change in our ecosystem. That's next week on Science for the People on your local radio station or online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Today we're pouring into the much-appreciated science of beer malting and brewing with expert brewer, scientist, and Professor Dr. Charlie Bamforth. Charlie is a professor of malting and brewing sciences at UC Davies and has spent over three decades in pursuit of the science behind the perfect pint. So going back to water for a second, I've actually heard that the kind of water used in beer brewing is actually very important. Uh, for example, that more calcium is needed to make some kinds of ales? Yes, um, there are two extremes uh, in, in water. The um, uh, One extreme, tremendously hard water, is the water in Burton-on-Trent, um, England. And this has got a phenomenal level of calcium in there. 
And uh, there are very, various uh, effects that that has. One of them is to really uh, lower the pH uh, of the mash. That's because it reacts with things like phosphate and proteins and releases protons and, and, and acidifies the mash. And that influences extractability of, of, of things. It influences enzymic action and so on. At the other extreme, um, there is uh, this very, very soft water in Pilsen. And that's got a very, very low level of calcium. Um, so people um, uh, basically say, well, if you really want to make a great Burton pale ale, then you've got to have this very, very high water, indeed uh, hard water. Indeed, in Germany, they got that classic German word, Burtonization, to, uh, which refers to uh, adding uh, calcium salts to match the water in Burton on Trent. And some people say, you know, to make a great Pilsner, you've got to have really, really soft water. Uh, it's not quite so hard and fast as that. Uh, but the, 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 the bottom line is that the water does have a major influence, and you need to control it. Uh, the thing about brewing is we try to control everything. We try to achieve consistency. We want to have excellent beer every time. And obviously, if you've got something which is at least 90% of most beers, which, which water is, uh, that's certainly something you have to control. Uh, and if you really are keen to uh, produce identical beer, uh, from different breweries, say you're a very large brewing company and you're brewing uh, in different breweries and you want to make the same beer in different breweries and have it tasting the same from every one, then you better match the water. And of course you can do that. You can add salts, you can take salts out. And so although people talk about the terroir of brewing and link it through to the water, and it's of course a, a, a realistic thing to talk about, Nonetheless, I can recreate the terroir of any brewing location anywhere I want uh, in a single brewery. And that's the, exactly what we do in our experimental uh, brewery here in Davis. So basically, we can brew excellent German beer right here in North America. Well, we can, absolutely. And you know, there's very real reasons why you might want to do that. And, and the main reason is that beer doesn't travel well, or the vast majority of beers don't travel well. Some of the more alcoholic ones, um, they will stand up. But certainly most regular strength beers uh, do not like to travel. The old adage is, you know, if you want to drink a beer, drink it as close to where it was brewed as possible. So to my mind, it's far better to brew a certain beer under license, for example, uh, according to the laid down procedures, somewhere that can be many miles away, thousands of miles away from where that beer originates. Because then, as long as it's been done properly, and, and as long as it's been done using the adjusted water and using the correct malt with the right specification, the correct yeast, blah, 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 and the correct process, then you can produce a perfect match to what that beer is supposed to be. And now, it's close to where it's going to be drunk. Therefore, it's not going to go stale. You see, beer develops a pronounced cardboard, wet paper flavor um, with, uh, with traveling. And if it's traveled all the way from Europe and it's bounced around on a ship through who knows what temperature, by the time you get it over here, uh, it is not as good uh, as it was when it left home. But if it's brewed over here, uh, then uh, it's, chances are it is going to be a lot better. And not only that, as I said, most beers are at least 90% water. So it really doesn't make sense to ship uh, water um, vast distances. It's an expensive business. So that is why there are brewers, uh, uh, for example, famous uh, craft brewers like Sierra Nevada, building new breweries on the east coast of the United States uh, because that was a better way to satisfy that side of the market from the perspective of cost and also from the perspective of quality. 
I think actually this might be a related question. Uh, we had an audience question from Alan via email. He asks, I've heard that most beer comes in brown bottles because blue light can make beer go bad. Is this true? And if so, how does it work? If you talk to any technical brewer, they'll say uh, any colored glass as long as it's brown. And uh, any marketing person will say yeah, any color as long as it isn't brown because brown isn't sexy. But, you know, brown is better. Uh, for the simple reason that it prevents, uh, for the most part, but not absolutely, but for the most part, uh, the ingress of light uh, that uh, causes beer to go skunky. Now, in particular, we're talking about light in the, in the region of 350 to 500 nanometers. And if it gets into the beer, which it will through a, a green glass bottle or a clear glass bottle, then it reacts uh, with, um, well, actually, it reacts with riboflavin, and the riboflavin passes on the, the energy to the bitter acids, the isoalpha acids, and they break down to give the delicious aroma of the skunk. Um, and as you've got a, a technical audience, it's 3-methyl-2-butene-1-thiol. And frankly, uh, most people don't like the beer to smell of skunks, and that's what will happen if uh, the beer uh, is packaged in that type of glass, unless uh, you actually use uh, chemically modified hops. It's perfectly possible uh, to take hops and extract the, the, the resins and then to produce the bitterness um, in, uh, in a factory and uh, add hydrogen to reduce them. And the bitter acids then uh, can be used to provide the bitterness uh, but they will no longer break down to get uh, a skunky flavor. So there's a very famous beer in North America that for the longest time has been packaged in clear glass bottles uh, and brewed in the United States um, that uh, will never go skunky because uh, they have pioneered the use of these uh, transformed hops. Now, I know hops is a plant, but I'm actually not certain if the term refers to a certain part of the plant or the whole thing. What part of the plant are we actually using as an ingredient? Well, what we're talking about is the, the flowering body from the female um, of uh, the species. Hops are dioecious. That means there are, there are male hop plants and there are female hop plants. And it's the female that is uh, prized um, because uh, the female elaborates these uh, hop cones and in those hop cones, there are uh, glands called um, lupulin glands, and they contain the resins and they contain the oils. The resins are what uh, provides the bitterness, and it's those resins that are extracted traditionally during the boiling stage um, in brewing, and they are transformed. They are isomerized, which produces bitter acids that are um, bitter, but also they help to stabilize the foam. Uh, they're also uh, antimicrobial. Uh, the downside is they're sensitive to light, as I've just described. The other component of the, of the uh, lupulin glands are the oils, and the oils provide that wonderful hop aroma. If you put the hops in during the start of the boil to, to maximize the extraction of bitterness, you boil off all that aroma. It's all lost. So what they do in traditional lager brewing is to hold a proportion of the hops back to the end of the boil so that some of the oil remains and then it passes into the, uh, the wort. The yeast um, transforms it a little bit and changes the characteristics of it and the, the, the character in the beer is called uh, late hop character and it's a very subtle hop character which is particularly associated with Pilsner styles uh, of beer. Uh, for ales, traditionally, what, what you do to provide a strong hop aroma is to add hops to the finished beer. 
And this stems back to the traditional use in England on cask conditioned ales of, of a handful of hops uh, in the finished barrel. Uh, so that when you go and have one of those delicious beers pulled in a pub in, in, in England, uh, the barrel that the beer is pulled out of has actually got some hops in there providing this uh, what is called a dry hop character. Of course, over here in, in North America, and particularly in the craft scene over here in the States, they, they love their hops, and therefore they don't put so much put a handful in there as a, a bucket load. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, and that intense hopper aroma is from the, the, the oil component of, of the hops. So the next major ingredient in beer, I think, is yeast. And this is where the alcohol part comes in, right? Well, the yeast, of course, is going to uh, convert the sugars that you've extracted in the brew house and convert those into alcohol and carbon dioxide. Uh, the yeast also produces a range of other flavor constituents. Uh, for many beers, you may not notice that, insofar as a lot of the character comes from the, the malt and the hops. But certainly for the, the gentler flavored lager-style products, um, then the yeast makes a very significant uh, impact. And let me just, just say that, you know, People are very rude about the, some of the, the, the traditional, should we say, lager products in the United States and Canada and the, the traditional North American lagers. Those are very difficult to produce because they're, they're not so intensely flavored uh, that you can uh, tolerate any mistakes. If you make a mistake when you're brewing a gently flavored uh, lager, uh, then you'll notice it. And uh, if you're making one of these more intensely flavored products, you can cover a multitude of sins. So the yeast uh, is making alcohol. It is making some flavor constituents. The worst of these is something called diacetyl, which smells of butterscotch. And in all brewery fermentations, you, you actually produce that. And few of us want our beer to smell of popcorn or butterscotch. The, the good news is the yeast will then uh, scavenge it uh, again and get rid of it again. But you have to make sure you leave the fermenting beer and the yeast together long enough for that to happen. And that is a true uh, limiting step in, in, in fermentation. So there are many different yeast strains, um, a lot of ale strains, not so many lager strains. Um, lager is Saccharomyces pastorianus, uh, ale strain Saccharomyces cerevisiae. But lager strains, you can't isolate them readily from nature. Uh, quite how they arose is a bit of a mystery. There have been some recent studies suggesting that uh, there's an organism that uh, comes from uh, a forest somewhere in Patagonia that uh, it was involved, and that lager strains are really a meld um, of uh, an ale strain combining with a, a wine strain called Eubionus or Bionus many years ago, thousand million, you know, eons ago. Um, but lager strains are actually more complicated for that reason, but there aren't many of them. There is actually one type of ale strain which is very uh, important and does give a very unique flavor. And that is the ale strain that is used to make uh, Hefeweizen. And that is a, an ale strain that has got an extra gene in it for making a, a clove-like flavor uh, called four-vinyl glycol. And so that uh, the presence of a clove and a strong banana-like character, uh, those are characteristics of an authentic Hefeweizen that has been made with that particular type of yeast. So I've actually lately been branching out into the world of beer and have discovered bottle-fermented beer, where some of the yeast is actually left in the bottle. Is there a benefit to doing this rather than filtering it out? There are various reasons why you would do it, and of course it is a fairly traditional thing. When I was a research manager for Bass um, a long, long time ago now, uh, we actually, in those far-sighted days, used to have bottle-conditioned beer actually in the laboratory. Can you imagine that? Um, 
you're not even allowed to have water in the laboratory these days, but we, we had beer uh, and it would stimulate our brain cells. Sounds like a great job. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a beer called White Shield, which had quite a lot of yeast in the bottom. And I, one of my colleagues, uh, Roy, is a, a fine guy, a good scientist, but 10 o'clock every morning, he would very carefully decant his uh, first white shield of the day into a glass uh, so as to leave the yeast in the bottle. And then he would uh, drink the yeast straight out of the bottle as his source of B vitamin. So there's, there's a benefit right there. Probably the, 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 the company in the world that produces more bottle-conditioned beer than any other is Sierra Nevada. And uh, I'm always... Uh, uh, keen to point out that that is the most beautiful brewery in the world in Chico here in California. Uh, and the reason that uh, Ken Grossman first started uh, carbonating his beer that way and introducing the extra carbon dioxide that you find in beers uh, higher than the level you get it out of a fermenter, the reason he did it, he couldn't afford a carbonator. You know, many brewers, they actually, to top up the carbon dioxide into the package, they actually use uh, a carbonator in line. He couldn't afford that, so he actually decided to do bottle conditioning, which is where you leave some sugar in the beer and then add yeast, which will actually uh, produce the carbon dioxide in the bottle. Uh, the advantage really is uh, if you've got yeast in the bottle, it does provide some protection. Yeast is a wonderful scavenger of, of things like oxygen. And indeed, beer in a bottle is less stable than beer in a can because no oxygen can creep into a can, neither can light. Uh, but oxygen air can creep in between the neck of a bottle and the crown cork. And so this does happen in a bottle, but if your bottle has got yeast in it, that does provide some protection. So we've touched on it a little bit, but my understanding is that there are two major sort of divisions in beer brewing. We've got ales and we've got lagers. What's the difference? Uh, it's basically what you say it is. <laughs> uh, uh, I can remember uh, back in the uh, 70s, a, a well-known brand of beer, perhaps it was earlier, a well-known brand of beer in, the, uh, in England, actually, that was uh, uh, an ale. And then they, they realized they could tell stories about storage, because that's what the word lager means, to store. And they said, oh, it's an expensive process, so you have to store it. And therefore, they, they changed the label and called it a, a lager. That's a bit uh, naughty. Uh, but most people would, uh, would uh, first of all, point to the yeast. Uh, so ale yeast, given its druthers, will rise to the top of a fermenter and be harvested uh, by skimming from the top of a, a fermenter, say an open fermenter, square fermenter. Uh, lagers traditionally are bottom fermenting yeasts, and therefore they sink to the bottom of the uh, fermenter. And usually they're fermented, uh, used, they, they are used in fermentation at a significantly lower temperature. But, you know, in these very, very big cylindroconical fermenters these days, ale strains um, can, uh, they don't rise to the top, they sink to the bottom. So, uh, although strictly speaking, a lager is produced with a lager strain and ale with an ale strain, uh, these boundaries get very blurred these days. Uh, the late hopping is associated with lagers, the dry hopping uh, with ales. But... Um, there is tremendous um, blurring of the boundaries between the different styles within the ale and within the lager category and, and between the ale and the lager categories. Um, so the purist uh, is mortified when uh, that sort of thing is said. Uh, but the reality is that I've been to breweries where they've only got one yeast strain and they've been putting out beers that have been labeled as ales and, uh, and lagers. Uh, it's a little bit naughty, uh, but that's the real world. 
Okay, so maybe you can clarify something when it comes to pouring techniques. Some people insist beer should be poured down the side of the glass to minimize the head, but I've heard others insist if you pour straight down the center of the glass and then wait for the head to settle, you actually get a more draft-like beer with better foam. Can science settle this great debate? Oh, absolutely. And and what you're touching upon now is the one of the most beautiful things that mankind, humankind, has ever seen. Uh, we're talking about the foam, the beer. And categorically, you never pour it gently down the side of the glass. That is a, a dreadful thing to do. Uh, you should always pour it with vigor. Uh, but the one possible exception is if somebody else is pouring a, a beer uh, from a tap uh, into your glass on draft, then you do want to make sure you get a plenty of beer. But if you're in control of the bottle or the can, uh, what you need to do is this. You first of all need a very clean glass, and you should always wash your glasses uh, before anything else, and never alongside anything else in your sink, never in a machine, and you should always rinse them with clean water f before you actually allow them to drain dry. And then you pour them with vigor to the center of the glass, so uh, basically um, most of the beer is converted into foam, um, so what you're doing is releasing carbon dioxide, you're releasing any excess carbon dioxide uh, that might actually uh, give you a little bit of, uh, too much of a carbonation uh, level. As the liquid drains, the proteins that come from the grain and the bitter acids that come from the hops, they uh, link together in the bubble walls and they stabilize the foam. And uh, the more foam you produce, uh, the greater is the opportunity for that to happen before the liquid has drained away. And so now you get a, what is, if you look at it very carefully, you get a fairly uh, a solid looking foam. It's because it's fairly rigid because of these protein bitter acid interactions. And now as you sip the beer steadily, uh, the, the foam uh, adheres to the side of the glass and gives you these beautiful cathedral windows of foam adhering to the side of this nice clean glass. And as I'm usually want to say, uh, never consume with lipstick and uh, if you've got a, a mustache get rid of the mustache and if you've got a lipstick and mustache then you're really not going to have a good stable foam on the beer. I like that we are taking beer very seriously because I know I take beer very seriously when I drink it. And you know and we've done all this work to actually confirm absolutely and categorically that if a beer has a foam on it um, people are influenced by that. If there's a foam on the beer, they will judge it as being a superior beer. Now, there are some people who claim they don't like foam, um, but uh, there, there may be some in the minority, but the majority of people, they are very much influenced by it. I remember at Bass, if we did trials on a beer, two beers, and we were trying to see which one tasted uh, better because there was some difference we expected in the taste, if we actually serve them with different foam performance, a difference of foam stabilities, the one with the better head always was the one that was preferred. People drink with their eyes. It's amazing how much perception actually changes our taste buds even. Totally. You know, I remember years ago, we actually took a, a very famous lager, actually a Canadian lager, which is the best selling beer in the United Kingdom called Carling Black Label. And we actually, in an experiment, we actually uh, increased the color and made it look like an ale. And we did it with something that didn't provide any flavor. And when we tasted it without looking at it, there, there, there was no difference in flavor. But when we showed it to people and they could see the beer, they scored it, they rated the, the beers very differently, and they said the beer 
tasted different. And basically they said the Carling Black Label was a great lager and the other thing was an ale. Uh, and it was the same beer. It was the same beer. Uh, it just looked different. So has the information accumulated by scientists like yourself in pursuit of a better pint of beer contributed to other fields of science? Uh, I hope so. I, I, I certainly believe so. I mean, and brewing for the longest time has been the home of some great science. And if you look back um, to Burton, for example, uh, which I would contend is one of the great historic centers of brewing, you know, there was a time when there were three fellows of the Royal Society who were employed in brewing companies in Burton-on-Trent. And uh, they were doing some fairly fundamental work. And uh, they were publishing uh, mainstream work. You know, the first work on enzyme kinetics uh, was done by somebody working on a brewing system. Um, I call it Adrian Brown. If you go over to uh, Carlsberg in Copenhagen, there's a company which, for the longest time, has dedicated um, its its uh, mission uh, to supporting the science and the arts. And in science, uh, it's out of Carlsberg that the concept of pH arose. It's out of Carlsberg that the, the, the famous method for measuring nitrogen arose, uh, the Heldahl method. If you go back to Guinness, uh, the student T-test came out of uh, Guinness. There's a man called Gossett who wanted to publish his work on the statistics of barley breeding, and Guinness uh, wouldn't let him, so he, he published it anyway under a pseudonym, uh, student. Uh, and so the list goes on. So, you know, if you look back, so, so much of uh, the, uh, the, the things that are applied these days came out of the brewing industry. Look at the modern-day uh, biotechnology industry. All of that uh, fermenter design, the cleaning of fermenters and so on, and the use of pure cell, pure cell cultures, that came out of the brewing industry. A man called Emil Christian Hansen in Carlsberg back at the, in the last decade of the 19th century was the first guy to basically isolate pure cultures of, of yeast. And these are, this is the norm worldwide now to, to use uh, uh, pure cultures of a single strain. And, of course, that technology is now applied in, in a, whenever, wherever pure uh, cultures of organisms of whatever type are applied in, uh, in industry. So, yeah, and this continues to happen, that uh, brewing has got a long and a very proud uh, history of publishing. And through organizations like the Institute of Brewing, the American Society of Brewing Chemists, uh, a lot of uh, papers are published that are, are widely cited elsewhere. And the stuff we do on barley and yeast uh, and so on is, is uh, picked up by people in lots of other walks of life. So talking a little bit about the wholesomeness of beer, which is something I actually grabbed from your website, um, tell me when I can expect science to tell me that beer is healthy for me. It is already. It's, it's already telling you that. Um, but, uh, of course, uh, people are uh, got a false perception. Beer is perceived as somehow being unhealthy. Uh, and people, of course, the first thing they say is, oh, the beer belly. Well, there is no such thing as a beer belly. It's, it's all about calories in and calories out. Um, and, of course, the main source of calories in any beer uh, is alcohol, uh, just like it is in wine or any other alcoholic beverage. Uh, and if you count those calories, and, of course, yes, there are some coming from some carbohydrates and uh, from the protein and so on, but the main amount is coming from the alcohol. But if you count those calories in beer and you include it along your calorie count, and as long as you burn off more calories than you uh, take in, you ain't going to get a beer belly. Uh, it is as simple as that. It's, it's a complete myth. Um, 
the fact is that uh, people who drink beer, many people who drink beer, uh, perhaps don't do that. They don't count those calories. What I'm fond of saying is, you know, people who drink wine jog uh, and belong to health clubs. Uh, but people who drink beer uh, eat burgers and watch ball games. It, 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 it's a lifestyle thing. Um, but there's absolutely no reason why beer cannot be part of a, of a very healthy uh, lifestyle and a very healthy diet. It's the wine guys, they, they really did steal the moral high ground with, with all this business of the French paradox and, and drinking wine, cutting down the risk of atherosclerosis and linking it through to something called resveratrol, which is a, a complex polyphenolic from, from the skin of the grape. Um, well, in passing, I would say that there is resveratrol in hops, but that's not really important either because the active ingredient in any alcoholic beverage that cuts down the risk of atherosclerosis and bad cholesterol is actually alcohol and beer is just as effective as wine. And the reality is also that uh, beer actually contains more nutritional benefit. Uh, beer is the richest source of the element silicon in the diet and that has been linked by some uh, medics in the UK into reduced risk of osteoporosis. Uh, beer contains uh, significant levels of several B vitamins. Uh, beer contains uh, some significant levels of soluble fiber and possibly some prebiotics. Um, uh, beer contains antioxidants and in fact uh, it has been shown that uh, at least one of the antioxidants from beer, ferulic acid, does actually get into the body. And that is what it's all about. You know, so many of these claims on antioxidants for foodstuffs um, say, oh, there's loads of the antioxidant. But if it doesn't get into the body, what's the point? Uh, we know that ferulic acid from beer does get into the body and uh, hopefully does some benefit there. So the, the simple reality is that, that, that beer has been linked um, to a, a wholesome lifestyle. For, for the longest time, people have suggested that beer may promote lactation. Um, beer cuts down the risk of kidney stones, cuts down the risk of gallstones, improves cognitive function in the elderly, and the list goes on. So since you're on the cutting edge of beer research, can you tell us what your current research topics include? Well, that is, uh, the, the, the whole health thing is one of them. Um, and of course, the difficulty is that if, if you are a professor of brewing science, there's a lot, of people, a lot of people out there who say, well, you know, we can't trust you because you're going to say that, aren't you? Uh, which I, I rather resent because what we try to do is, is to be as even-handed as possible and certainly to point out the downside. Uh, if you abuse anything in that it would include alcohol, it ain't going to do any good. Uh, for the longest time, we've done work on, on foam, so we're, we're, we're quite well known for that. Um, we do a lot of work on freshness and how to preserve the, the freshness of beer. Um, recently, we've done, we've done work on hop aroma. Um, and uh, how to uh, celebrate the hop rather more. You know, the, uh, the wine guys and some of my really good friends uh, are in the, the wine business, but of course they, they make no, uh, there's no bones about actually celebrating different uh, grape varietals. Well, we can do that with hops as well. And there's so many different hop varieties which have got all sorts of interesting flavors associated with them. And uh, depending on how you use them in the brewing process, you can introduce all sorts of uh, uh, flavor characteristics, aroma characteristics into beer. So we're very keen on, on that area as well. We continue to, to find new enzymes that nobody's ever worked on uh, before, in, uh, in malt particularly. Uh, and the list goes on. I, I've got a fairly extensive uh, uh, research interest. And, um, uh, and basically, if a student has got some interesting 
project that they would like to work on, then uh, you know, the chances are I'll let them do that. And we're unfortunately all out of time. Charlie, thanks for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. You'll always find links to more information about our guests and their work on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, click the links to connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, and onto iTunes, where you can subscribe to the weekly podcast or leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Music